Good morning. How are yous this morning? What area of the country is that dialect from? Yous. Is it Philadelphia, George? The very first job I had was as a dishwasher in Cobblestone Kitchen in Holland, Michigan. And we had a, a manager there. His name was Bo. And every day we'd come to work, he'd say, How are yous? So how are yous this morning? All right, let's move on. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 23. Psalm chapter 23. Two weeks ago, two weeks ago we took a look at a very familiar passage of Scripture. Philippians 1 verse 21. You recall if you were here, where Paul makes a remarkable and emphatic statement that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. And as we unpack that verse a bit, judging from your responses after the service and throughout the week, many of us found that however familiar that verse, it was worthwhile to revisit it. And in doing so, we found perhaps something we hadn't seen there before. Or even if something we had seen there before, but we didn't need it in our lives until right now. A good friend who is um, a good friend who's normally very eloquent in his speech fumbled over his words after the service to express to me, Todd, I, I, I'd read that scripture so many times and I just, I never, wow, to live as Christ is a call to self-sacrifice rather than only victory in Jesus. And, and Paul actually chose that self-sacrificial road for the sake of others over being with Jesus in heaven. I just never, oh man, oh! Or something like that. And the Bible is like that and will do that to you if you let it. Just when you think you got it. And it's time to move on to something new. If we take the time to revisit it, if we take the time to revisit it, God's Word speaks to us over and over again and again in ways we hadn't quite seen or needed before. Even from the same exact words we already knew. My friends, we need to be critically aware of a cultural norm or tendency for most of us. And that cultural norm or tendency is we love new things. Have you noticed? And we love new things so much that as things we have grow old, we tend to lose interest in them because they're old. We tend to let go of older things simply because they're older to make room for newer things simply because they're newer. We get bored easily and we're constantly hungry for something new and interesting. Newer is necessarily better, our culture screams. Just check the times you hear or read in an advertisement words and phrases like new, improved, latest, greatest, fresh, state-of-the-art for the first time and never before. We love new. And the devil, one of his tricks, I think, is to try and exploit or twist that tendency in us, that 
newer is necessarily better tendency. In one area, he tries to exploit that tendency is in the area of God and His Word. Because, after all, God is old. (laughs) He's the Ancient of Days. The Bible tells us that's old. And the Bible, you know, the Bible, the most recent new edition, is 2,000 years old. Not including translations. There's a new one of those every week. And there are parts of the Bible written another thousand years before that about things that happened thousands of years even before that. Old indeed. But you know, old isn't necessarily bad. Because old can also mean tested, reliable, trustworthy. But the devil tries to exploit our love of new When it comes to God and His Word, they're old, he whispers. Let me show you something new. (laughs) By the way, he does this in other areas too, like our marriages. Gee, I wonder if our love of new contributes to the sickening coin flip 50-50 divorce rate, same inside and outside the church inexplicably. Tired of your old spouse? Get yourself a new, improved one. Use, need one that's state-of-the-art. Or if you prefer, keep the same one and have an affair with someone new. The devil exploits our love of new. You see on the screen a very old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. In checking the origin of that phrase, the oldest reference I could find was Aesop's fables, involving, of course, the fox and a lion. Aesop was certainly fascinated with foxes and lions, it seems. And the fable talks about how a fox was terrified, and terrified in a way that was awestruck even, when he first saw and beheld the king of beasts. Whoa, look at that! The majestic king. But then the next couple of times the fox saw the lion, he was less impressed each time. Until the final time, he turned his back on the lion and lost interest altogether. And Aesop's moral to the story is familiarity breeds contempt. And with all due respect to Aesop and his foxes and lions, the idea that familiarity breeds contempt is much older than they are. As with all truth, the idea is biblical. Jesus says in Luke, I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Hmm. Because a hometown is too familiar with the person, perhaps? Because familiarity breeds contempt? Or how about way back in Genesis 3? How much of Adam and Eve's fascination with forbidden fruit is born out of a desire for a new experience? 
despite God's clear instruction to stay the course? Did their familiarity with God's instruction somehow breed contempt for it and even for Him? Was He keeping us from wisdom? Did their fascination for something new lead them to try something new even though they knew it was wrong? The devil exploits our love of new and ironically it is indeed a very, very old trick. Now, let me briefly balance that a bit with another old saying that is equally true. Necessity is the mother of invention. That's from Plato's Republic. Although this idea, too, is older than Plato, and as with all truth, the idea is biblical. God lovingly and relentlessly creates necessity in the lives of His people to spur spiritual newness and growth. So, of course, not all new things are bad, and not all old things are good. We need to grow and mature and go for it in many new ways, as well as cling to many old rugged cross ways. And so when faced with a decision or a choice of old and or new, boy, we need more than ever God's discernment as we make those choices. So help us God indeed. But this morning I want to talk about God and His Word specifically. And I'm suggesting to you, strongly suggesting, even so bold this morning, to declare to you that God and His Word is never, ever too old. Can I get an amen? Amen. They are both old, God and His Word, but never, ever too old. God and His mercies and His faithfulness are indeed also new every morning, praise God. And His Word is a constant light to our path. Not a flashbulb that started and ended at some point in time past, but a warm, bright, welcoming, lighthouse light, ever-present, shedding new light, if you will, on our way and path. Every changing circumstance in and throughout our lives lit by fresh and new light of God. And so for the next few weeks, I'd like to do a little more of what we did with that familiar Philippians 1.21 two weeks ago. I'd like to, with you, circle back again to a few, however very familiar, verses in Scripture that maybe experience together something that, although very ancient, although very familiar, is also remarkably new. See, God knows, God knows our tendency to love new Two, it's not necessarily evil. He created us with that tendency. He created us that way. And it's indeed a blessing. He created us to be delighted with new things. And so He gives us a word, His word, that although old, is also new. But for us to appreciate that, to notice that, to benefit from that, We need to take time to revisit even, perhaps especially, very familiar parts. And so this morning, 
I chose, with what, I chose what almost every commentator agrees is the most familiar passage or at least chapter in all of Scripture. Statistics suggest both inside and outside the church, even those outside the church they've heard of and they can recite portions in Psalm 23 rings familiar to them. Your Bibles are open to Psalm 23, so let's, let's circle back again, shall we, to see what God might reveal to us new or anew in and through this however very old and very familiar chapter. Would you stand, please, if you are able and so inclined, I invite you to stand. Let's read together this cherished psalm, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? Amen. Please be seated. Now the very first image, the very first image this psalm offers is that of shepherd. And we could indeed spend hours on that picture alone, but for narrow contextual purposes in this psalm and for this morning, there are two, two maybe not so obvious things about shepherd I'd like to explore together. First, a shepherd in the Bible, did you know, a shepherd in Bible times didn't enjoy the greatest reputation was a lowly job, dishonorable even, equivalent with outcast and even desert bandit. And shepherding was extremely lonely, tedious work, requiring unbelievable amounts of time and effort and danger and travel far from home. And so immediately the psalmist, in this case a shepherd himself, David, who ought to know, gives us this picture of God. And David even uses God's sacred name to emphasize this point. The Lord, the most powerful, highest, exalted, indescribable, not to mention only true and living God, great beyond our wildest imagination, is nevertheless not too high and mighty to humble himself to the role of a lowly shepherd when it comes to his sheep, his people, his people whom he loves. The Almighty God of the universe is my shepherd. And that's unlike any shepherd anyone could ever hear of or even imagine beyond your wildest dreams. The Lord is my shepherd. And He humbles Himself to that task. Second, a shepherd's role... A shepherd's role, obviously, is immediately identified with sheep, specifically providing, guiding, and protecting. And so the Lord of all people, of all things, the Lord of all people is my, is my provider, my protector, and my guide. And who better 
than Almighty God to have for those roles. David sings, I'm sure, with no small amount of joy and maybe even humble pride as he himself is a shepherd that God Himself is my provider and protector and guide. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want is the next line. That line, I shall not be in want. Next key idea in this psalm. The King James Version says, I shall not want. In the NIVs, I shall not be in want. It's a helpful clarification of the original Hebrew text. The psalmist is not talking about what we want in terms of our every desire. Rather, he's talking about want in terms of what we need. We don't want for anything we need. And that's important to catch. It's important to catch because what we want or even think we need, is often very different from what we in fact need. Have you noticed? The Amplified Bible translation says, I shall not lack with God as my shepherd. Excellent translation. Correctly emphasizes need not want. And Eugene Peterson in the message makes it even clearer when he says, God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. got time this morning for one more from this psalm. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I want to lie in those green pastures with you a little bit and perhaps suggest to you something you hadn't quite heard before. I know I didn't when someone first pointed it out to me. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of green pastures, I think of something like that picture on the screen, complete with that sheep. Lush, succulent, peaceful, abundant supply of food and water and safety. As my friend Ray Vanderlaan likes to say, knee-deep alfalfa. And actually found a that's actually alfalfa. And there's a sheep standing in knee-deep alfalfa. I laughed out loud when I came across that picture. But let me show you a picture of the green pastures David knew and loved and was familiar with as a shepherd in Israel. That's a biblical green pasture. Not a lot of green. Or pasture for that matter, it doesn't seem to me. At least not to our understanding of green pasture. For those of you listening online, the picture I'm sharing this morning is a, an actual sheep pasture from Israel outside of Arad, and it looks hard and dry and rocky and pretty sparse. But if you look close, there is grass there among the rocks, and there's enough grass to satisfy the daily needs, at least, of any sheep. Now, is David in Psalm 23 longing for and writing about better pastures than those he is familiar with in Israel? Is that what he intends when he says green pastures in Psalm 23? Does he intend the knee-deep alfalfa kind? Perhaps. But I think 
context demands, at least we also consider that David intends as exemplary the pastures he's used to in God's flowing with milk and honey promised land of Israel when David says green pastures. You ask, well, how can you get there? Well, as I've mentioned already, contextually, there's an emphasis on the ultimate of God being providing for what we need versus all we could ever want. And that context seems to fit better with the however sparse-looking green pastures of Israel, nevertheless holding enough to meet the needs of the sheep. Let me ask you, do you have everything that you need right now for the rest of your life? Has God given that to you yet? even if you've prayed the prayer of Jabez 1,000 times. Now, in one sense, you may answer, yes, I have Jesus, and that's all I need. And theologically, you get an A+, because that is indeed true on a macro scale. He is indeed all anyone needs. Amen? But in terms of practical daily needs, as you live even life in Christ... Do you have everything right now you'll need for the rest of your life? Has God given that to you yet? Well, the answer for me is not yet. Remember the story of the manna in the wilderness? God gave specific instructions to His people to gather enough manna for one day only. Except the day before Sabbath, they could take extra so they wouldn't have to work on Sabbath. But otherwise, you are to take enough for one day as to each person's need, God says. And when some people went and took more than their daily need, what happened to the manna? Do you remember? Yes. The extra beyond a daily portion, all rotten, moldy, smelly, full of maggots. Nice. Now, why would God do that? What's the big deal there? Here's why, in my opinion, he was teaching his, fam- his family, his people, daily reliance on him. He loves his kids, God does, so much that he wants his people with him all the time. Not just once in a while on Sunday. If you need New Testament affirmation of this principle, then consider the prayer Jesus taught His disciples and through them all of us to pray. You all know the line in the prayer. It goes, Father, give us our daily bread. Hmm. We're to look to God and ask God daily to provide for our daily bread. And if we're on to something here about the Psalm 23 green pastures being not only abundant in terms of our needs, but also challenging, it becomes imperative that the sheep stay as close to the shepherd as possible because he alone knows where the next daily bite of food is to be found. So implicit 
and presumed in the shepherd's sheep, all I need pasture picture of Psalm 23 is the clear message we are in a relationship with God and that relationship takes two. Funny how relationships are like that. And it's like the relationship, our relationship with God, it's like the relationship between shepherd and sheep, which means that we as sheep, we must, we better stay as close to the shepherd as possible or my friends, we're not going to make it. And so as we circle back to this familiar psalm, a fresh look, perhaps, to many of us. I know it was to me at these however old and familiar verses. Psalm 23 might begin something like this. The one and only Almighty God of the universe humbles Himself to be our very personal provider, protector, and guide. He gives us everything we need in the desert pastures of life, presuming, of course, that we stay as close to Him as possible, that we remain open and eager and willing and passionate and life or death intense in our pursuit of God. And that may be a little different than what many of us maybe have heard before from this psalm, a little different than God gives us everything we want if we only ask, or God gives us everything we want whether or not. We're indifferent or uninterested or distracted or self-interested or double-minded in pursuing relationship or staying as close to Him as possible. Or God gives us everything we need for the rest of our lives right now. I don't think that's there in the text. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. So, my fellow sheep, let's stay as close as we can to our shepherd or we're not going to make it. Now, how do we do that? Stay as close to God as possible. Three things came to my mind. Bible, prayer, and Christian community or fellowship came first and foremost to my mind. Craig mentioned the value of community and fellowship this morning during praise and worship. We've prayed already this morning, and now we're in God's text. One thing we're about here is we're trying to stay as close to the shepherd as possible. And by the way, the message in Psalm 23 and the picture of those pastures suggest daily, even as Jesus taught us to pray, lest we lose sight of that shepherd and perish. It's really life or death. Regular, even daily time in Bible, prayer, Christian fellowship. After the service, two weeks ago, one of our teens came up to me and said, Pastor Todd, I, I, I wish you would talk directly to us kids more often. So here goes. <laughs> Another lesson in be careful what you ask for. Morning. Morning. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. Good. You've got coffee in here. No. <laughs> it's okay. I do too. Did you notice they took those signs down? Yeah. I hope we can give a hand for the... 
I talked to Diane, um, who's responsible for the signs, and the only reason they took them down is they're making new ones. And I said, you know, wouldn't it be fun, instead of putting no coffee, put drinks welcome and see if anybody notices. <laughs> we'll see if no coffee signs bring up there again. For me, you know, I think it might be worth the time and expense to clean a stain or two for the hospitality of welcoming people to take their coffee in here. What do you think? Oh, boy. I just made it incredibly hard for whoever wants to put the signs back up. Sorry. I want to invite you guys um, to think about a couple of questions, respond to a couple of questions. You don't have to raise your hand. You may if you want to, but you don't have to. Do what you want. This is for you all, too. So you, you can listen in. How many of you, how many of you brought... Your wallets or your purse today. Okay? Or at least some place to put your money. You know? Money that you still have because you forgot to put it in the offering plate, I'm sure. <laughs> How many of you brought that with you today? You know, some sort of ID that says who you are, student ID, or if you can drive already, driver's license, receipts, you know, the important stuff that you keep in your wallet, right? I would imagine most or many of us brought our wallet. And, and good, because you may need it. How many of you brought your cell phone today? In addition to the ones I saw scrambling to put them away when you saw me coming over here. How many of you brought your cell phones today? Hey, good. You know, you may need it. Let's see, other things that are important that we may need. How about makeup or lip gloss, at least for the guys? <laughs> All right, let's see, other how about, how about How about clothes? You all brought your clothes today, and you're even wearing them. Praise God, thank you. You brought clothes with you today. And that's good. You're going to need them. How many of you brought your Bible today? I would guess more of us have our clothes and wallet and cell phone and makeup and lip gloss than have our Bible with us today. And I, the, the question I'd just like you to wrestle with, and I'd love to hear back from you sometime, why is that? Say, it's too big. They make like these little pocket ones now. In fact, if you have your cell phone, almost all of you, I think, have access to the Internet. BibleGateway.com. You've got every version, translation imaginable of the text. How many times do you visit it? See, this is the way I think. You tell me if I'm wrong. If we felt the Bible was as much a necessity as food or clothes or water or wallets or cell phones or makeup. If we felt it was as much a necessity as those, we would have it with us too. And so the way my mind thinks is, is if we don't have it, we must not feel it's necessary to have. 
Now, let me back off. I am not suggesting that whether or not you carry a Bible makes you a better or worse person or Christian. That is not my point. But, or and, if the Bible If the Bible is indeed necessary or even important, if it helps us to stay close to the shepherd, and staying close to the shepherd is indeed a life or death deal, might it be a good idea to have your Bible around? Because, my friends, older and younger, you're going to need it. It's one way at least, one significant way at least, that God pours out His provision, His protection, and His guide. Why? Because He loves you. He gives you this. I love you so much. I know life is so hard. And man, you get... Here. And how many times, whether kids are older, you know, we read it, we look at it, Lars, my shepherd, I should know it. Oh, yeah, okay. In the East, there's a saying, it's in Arabic, which I don't know, so I'll paraphrase in English. Only a fool goes into the desert without water. Or a hat, I think some versions add. I wonder if a similar saying might be only a fool would go into the desert of life without the Word of God. What's the difference? Jesus tells the Apostle John to write to the first century church in Ephesus the following words. You have forsaken your first love. Repent. Change course. That's what repent means. Repent, he says, and do the things you did at first. In other words, remember your first love who is God. Don't forsake Him. Don't lose sight of Him. Yes, He's ancient. And yes, His words are old. But He and His words are also as new and as vibrant and as relevant and as crucial as they were when they were first spoken and written down for you and for me out of love. And if you've forsaken your first love, if you need to circle back to Him once again, then I invite you to begin doing it again today. And if you do, you will discover a God who still loves you, has always loved you, and hasn't forgotten about you, even if you've forgotten Him. And He's standing at the ready, eager to protect, provide, and guide.
Go get them. Walt Disney, go figure, captured at least a picture of what we're talking about today in Toy Story 2. I'd like to share in closing this morning a scene, a scene called Jesse's Story. Now, a Toy Story 2 reminder, that's already gotten old. We're on to new things. Jessie is a toy. She's a toy doll who has experienced the beautiful first love of a child. But Jessie also experienced the heartbreaking loss of that child's love and attention as the child grew older and apart and moved on to something new. And Jessie's experience as you'll see in a minute, includes this intense, deep longing and hope and desire that her child will remember her first love and come back to Jesse again and play with Jesse and dance with Jesse and swing on the swing with Jesse again. And as Jesse sings her song telling us her story this morning, It struck me when I was listening to it this past week that God God may well sing this song or one very much like it over us when we forget Him and move on to new things. So, as you listen, as you watch, I invite you to reflect, reflect this morning on your relationship with God. Wherever it does, or maybe even doesn't, stand this morning. Jesse's Jesse's heart for her child, I think, truly illustrates, captures even a small piece of what the heart of God is for his children, for you and me. And I know, I know Jesse's child in this clip captures me from time to time in, in my relationship with God. Maybe you will relate too. Let's watch. Hey, what you doing way up here? I thought I'd get one last look at the sun before I get packed away again. Look, Jesse, I know you hate me for leaving, but I have to go back. I'm still Andy's toy. Well, if you knew him, you'd understand. You see, Andy's... Let me guess. Andy's a real special kid. And to him, you're his buddy, his best friend. And when Andy plays with you, it's like, even though you're not moving, you feel like you're alive. Because that's how he sees you. How did you know that? Because Emily was just the same. She was my whole world. When somebody loved me, everything was beautiful. Every hour we spent together lives within my heart. And when she was sad, I was there to dry her 
Never forget kids like Emily or Andy, but they forget you. Jesse, I didn't know. Just go. God loves you. Have you forgotten your first love? He's waiting for you, longing for you to come back. And one way, one powerful doorway into experiencing God and His love right here in and through an experience of his word I love this book I love God's word you know um, you guys teens or everyone it, it If there was one thing that I wish maybe our generation 
could redo is to better model for you and show you what it means to be madly in love with God and passionate about Him and His Word. Instead, our generation often has the audacity to point its finger at you and wonder what's wrong with you. When, my friends, they're merely reflecting and doing what they learned from us. If I could give you guys one thing, aside from knowing Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior and your salvation, if I could give you guys one more thing, it would be a passion for God in and through His Word. Have you lost track of your Bible? If you have, will you consider circling back to it daily? And you know when you do, you'll find there's something beautifully old and excitingly new. Something that makes the likes of Harry Potter, Twilight, and yes, even Facebook and Twitter seem like nothing. No other book, no other word or way to communicate. They have nothing on the Bible and an experience of God's Word. Nothing. You want intrigue? Romance, adventure, the supernatural, a great read, spies, politics, wars, battles, and even some hilarious laughs. It's all right here. No one's written anything better, even from a literary standpoint. So why do we put it down? And forsake it for something new. It's all right here. It's as wide and as deep as you want to go. It's all right here in this very old and very new Word of God. Next week, next week, let's um, continue, if you like, through Psalm 23, and and then we'll circle back to look at one, maybe two more, oh so old and familiar scriptures, and and see what God may have new or anew <clears throat> for us in His amazing Word. Amen? Do you want to do that again next week? Okay. Before we close, before we close in prayer and benediction, I'd like to give you a heads up for your Sunday planning purposes. This one didn't make the bulletin, but I'd like to get the word out there, please. Please circle on your calendar Sunday, September 20. Well, I hope every Sunday here is special. September 20 will be uh, eh special, if that's a word. We're kicking off during that service an exciting, old, but also new focus and vision for our church. One will continue to unfold each Sunday through Thanksgiving, but September 20 kicks it all off. So please, would you get that word out? September 20 is an all-hands-on-deck Sunday. If you miss any Sunday, you miss a lot, but that one in particular, we need you here for September 20, if at all possible. I would deeply appreciate if you can make it that day. And go ahead, bring... Bring both your friends, if you like. It'd be a great day for a first-time visitor. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for as big and strong, as powerful and as mighty you are. 
for humbling yourself to actually be head over heels in love with us enough to even take the role of a lowly shepherd. It boggles our minds and our hearts and our beings, Father, at least it does mine, that the God of the universe, that we could mean the world to You because of how much You love us. Oh, Father, help any familiarity that we have with that fact or Your Word. Help that not to get in the way of looking at You once again with childlike wonder at a beloved toy, even. Help us to circle back. Help us to say yes to the love that you have ready to overflow our cup, as the psalmist says. We love you. And in Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? A paraphrase of God's words, if you will, from later in this psalm. May goodness and love follow you all the days of your life. And may we all dwell together in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. We'll see you next week.